We, we discussed the, the love that uh, we must have, one for another, for God, for Christ. And even this deep abiding love of which we spoke must reach into the field of wishing our enemies well and of loving them in this sense. Not that the love or friendship that we have for our friends, our associates, even family members, this kind of love will not do that. And this is not what Christ was talking about as we indicated when he said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that despitefully use you, and so on. Now, at this point, we can uh, get the, the other kind of love out of our mind. That is, that expressed in the Greek word philio, because we only brought this in in order to contrast the two, to show the difference between the kind of love that uh, we have in a friendship with uh, a good friend or a family member to that uh, more deep far-reaching love that is uh, expressed in the Greek term agape. Now, as we pointed out, Christ was not entirely without or not at all without the love expressed in the word filial and is, was so expressed by the Apostle John as this special friendship that existed between him and Christ. But the real word that we are concerned about, that which should be present and enter into any discussion involved in our relationship one with another, that relationship that exists in our ecclesia. Now, uh, Brother Alex has been talking about the, the difference in opinion that came up in the time of Dr. Thomas and following Dr. Thomas. And when the, uh, uh, this feeling of love, of agape, is present, there's no trouble because people, brethren, can sit down and objectively and in the spirit of Christ discuss these things and uh, reconcile any difference that comes about or do everything possible in their power to reconcile, of course, uh, there isn't a uh, reconciliation is not always possible and he's began to talk about something there where there was a situation where a reconciliation could not be brought about entirely however there need not be any harsh words there need not be any anger there need not be any loss of, uh, of friendship or love as a result of this if people are motivated as they should be by this love of which we speak. However, as we also indicated in the case of Christ, who developed this love to a very high degree, a much higher degree <clears throat> than is possible for any of us, this nevertheless did not cause him to be willing to overlook and accept anything that uh, others held or did. Uh, because of it, as we pointed out, he drove out the money changers from the temple he uh, referred to the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites when their philosophy ran counter to that of the Heavenly Father. So this feeling of agape is very necessary, but it need not and should not cause us to compromise our principles because we have this love for uh, others. Now, as we closed yesterday, we were talking about 
a situation that I ran into in CPS during World War II, and which puzzled me uh, quite a little at the time. And that was that uh, this love, and, and there, the distinction was not made uh, uh, between filio and agape either, but uh, the idea that love is all we really need doesn't make anything else uh, any difference what else we believe or what we do. If we really have love, this is all we need. And as we indicated to you, these people have uh, support for this idea in some of the scriptures that we considered yesterday. Now, if we go to the 22nd chapter of Matthew, we read about the lawyer coming to Christ there in verse uh, 37 or 36, starting with 36, and ask him what the greatest commandment was. And Christ told him that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. <clears throat> On these two commandments, Christ said, hang all the law and the prophets. Now, uh, the, the commandment of loving, loving the Father and loving our neighbor, Christ says, and this is agape, uh, this is the word used in these instances here by Christ, he says, on these hang all the law and the prophets. Now, also, we referred to the 13th chapter of Romans uh, yesterday, and this is uh, another place where some support comes for this idea. Romans 13, verse 16. Uh, verse 10, rather. I was a little lost there. Didn't have 16 verses, and I couldn't imagine what happened. <laughs> Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, Therefore, love, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, this may not be any problem to you, but it was to me. I was quite young and inexperienced, and I wasn't sure what uh, was meant here, because I was aware of other things that uh, are necessary for uh, brethren to do. And we look at uh, some of that evidence in John chapter 14, verse 15. Where Christ said, if ye love me, now this is what uh, we've indicated this is necessary, and he says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. So this uh, obviously involved a lot more than love alone. And this was very apparent. But how were we going to explain the fact that Paul says that this is the fulfilling of the law? Love itself, in itself, is the fulfilling of the law. Well, this caused me to do some thinking and reasoning about this. Exactly how was the law fulfilled in love, but on the other hand, it was necessary to keep, to obey the commandments of Christ, which, of course, are many and varied. Now, this seems to me to be the answer to this problem or to this question. 
What Christ and Paul really meant was that love is the necessary medium through which we can acceptably do God's bidding. In other words, our success in properly and acceptably obeying Christ's commandments is contingent upon our subject to our willingness to develop love, <coughs> that is agape, and make it the motivating factor in our lives. This is the only way we can truly keep the commandments. In this manner, love is the fulfilling of the law, and on love hang all the law and the prophets. For without it, we can do nothing pleasing in God's sight. Now, what we're saying here is that love is the vehicle through which we can acceptably keep the commandments of Christ. If we try to do those commandments and do not have love in our heart in the way in which we should, then what we're doing avails, will avail us nothing. Now, this becomes apparent in the 13th of 1 Corinthians. Here, the Apostle Paul, addressing the brethren at Corinthians, verses 1 through 3, wrote, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, our love, agape, I am become as sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. So we can see now the way in which Love is the fulfilling of the law, because without it, anything we do, doesn't matter how good, how honorable, how much in keeping it is with the commandments of Christ, if we do it without love, it availeth nothing, doesn't do us any good whatsoever. So in this way, we can see how love truly is the fulfilling of the law. So it becomes apparent then that unselfish, self-sacrificing love must accompany everything we do. If, he, if we have it, we can truly keep Christ's commandments in an acceptable way, and we will, as Christ indicates, are commanded. Now the paramount question in all of this is, do we have it? Do we have this love of which Christ spoke and of which the Apostle Peter spoke and of which uh, the Apostle Paul spoke here in the 13th of 1 Corinthians? Now the only way that we can determine this is by self-analysis, self-examination. I don't believe it's necessary for us to go into that in any depth at this point because we've already done it two or three times already. <laughs> I told you, that seems to find its way into my notes pretty often. But uh, it's, it is important 
the fact that we're not going into it in detail at this moment does not take away from its importance, because we must do this. We must know uh, in our own minds, in our own hearts, whether or not we have developed this love of which Christ and the apostles spoke and wrote. If we cannot, if we cannot find this love in our hearts, or if we cannot find it within ourselves to start developing this love, we have real problems. Because, as we have indicated, this is the only way, the only possible way, that we can acceptably serve God in these matters, is by having this love, and by developing it, and building it into our character. Without it, nothing we do will avail us anything as Paul wrote in the 13th of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> With it, we can move into our service in the Master's vineyard. With it, we become a qualified, though humble, servant of the Most High God, ready to serve in the Master's vineyard. Not, of course, that we will ever reach perfection in this, in this day and time, we are working and striving toward perfection in this and all the other things that we do. But we'll never reach perfection in this age, in this dispensation of our mortality. But it's absolutely necessary that we have this, that we develop it, and that we be motivated for it, by it, that it becomes the moving, motivating factor in our lives. Now, at this point, we would like to go back a bit uh, at the time in our discussion where this phase of our discussion should have been presented. I didn't think that I would have the time for it, and I didn't present it there. And it looks as if I will have the time now, but I was afraid um, a little earlier that I might be encroaching upon Alex's subject, but he assures me that uh, he's thinking of a different phase of this subject. So uh, he said, go ahead. So I hope we do not muddy the waters for him. But uh, earlier in our discussion, we talked about the necessity of coming to God, of approaching him, of accepting his plan of salvation. Now, this in itself would indicate that a rupture has, uh, has occurred between God and man. It indicates that we need to be saved from something. And the fact that God has instituted a plan of salvation indicates there's something wrong. Now, we, we talked about this briefly. We said that we must accept the way God has uh, prescribed for us in order to come back to him to heal this breach that has come about. Now, that's what we would like to talk to you about briefly now uh, for the rest of this period. Now, when we start talking about this, it of necessity involves the nature and the sacrifice of Christ. Now, when we talk about the nature and sacrifice of Christ, 
It's like most Bible subjects. We cannot isolate it and place it off to itself and simply talk about that because there are tentacles from almost any Bible subject running into other things, and we have to take some of those things into account also in order to properly appreciate what the, the thoughts and the ideas that we want to get from the subject. And so it is with this. Now, it becomes necessary, before we talk to you about the nature and sacrifice of Christ, to go back to the time of creation. We go back to the first few chapters of Genesis, and we find some very important information here. Uh, we don't find a lot of detail, but we can glean from this those things necessary for us to properly understand the, the fundamental principles involved here are the fundamental principles that reach their tentacles back into the time of creation and that period of time immediately following the creation. Now we find, of course, the, the formation of man, Genesis 2-7, and the Lord God formed man of, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, man, in this condition following the creation, was not either mortal or immortal. Now, some of the questions that Alex read yesterday that were posed by Dr. Thomas uh, relate to, these, to this principle. Now, our experience, and it's difficult for us to understand anything that we have not experienced, and our experience is involved with mortality or immortality. Now, we have not yet experienced immortality, of course, but it's described in God's word and it's held out as a possibility to us. So we are, by the teachings of God, familiar with immortality, and we certainly are familiar with mortality. So our uh, concept of things tend to revolve around these two possibilities. But man was neither mortal nor immortal at the time of the creation, but he was capable of becoming either mortal or Im uh, immortal. Now, in this uh, condition, it's apparent that there was a very close communion between God and man. And at this time, man was placed under one law, which we refer to as the Edenic law. Let us look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, thou shalt not eat it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, the thing we're concerned about, the principle we're concerned about primarily here, is the statement that in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This would involve disobedience to God. This would involve sin. And God told the man and the woman that uh, if they ate of this tree, they would die. Now, I believe there's a better translation than uh, the one we have here, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, because it's very apparent to all of us that he did not die in that 24-hour day. Now, in the margin of most Bibles, we read that in the day thou eatest thereof, dying, thou shalt surely die. Now, uh, back a good many years ago, there was an old Jewish brother in uh, our ecclesia in Los Angeles, 
And when he came to us, he had learned the truth by his knowledge of the Hebrew and Greek. He, he spoke both and read both very fluently, and he had an excellent understanding of the words. And, and uh, he used many of the same words that Dr. Thomas used in Alpha's Israel and Eureka. And uh, before he even knew that there were Christadelphians, he had translated from Hebrew, uh, the original Hebrew, uh, into English, the first two chapters of Genesis. And he said that uh, when you understand all of the implications involved in the Hebrew in these two chapters, you have the gospel in the nutshell just from these two chapters. So he translated them, and he had them published, his uh, translation. And the way he translated uh, this verse here, the, in where the Edenic law is expressed to us, he translated it in, in, in this way. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt immediately become mortal. So the, certainly the implication here is that man was not mortal to begin with. Because uh, the law said, the day you eat, you will become mortal. And we understand from other sources since that this is the exact meaning from the original Hebrew. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt immediately become mortal. Now let's consider the beginning of the fall of man. Let's go to the third chapter of Genesis at the first verse. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now let's note the woman's reaction in verse 2 and 3. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now here we see the woman uh, not questioning the, the will of God, apparently being willing to accept what she had heard him say, what he had told her when he said, You shall not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt immediately become mortal. Now Dr. Thomas says that at this point, the potential to sin was latent within the man and the woman, but it had not manifested itself, and uh, it needed an outside tempter, such as the serpent, to excite this uh, potential in the man and the woman in order for them to give vent or rise to this possibility or this potential. Now let's continue reading to verses 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now this is, of course, a basic untruth which has been believed from this time right on down to our present day, that ye shall not surely die. For, reasoned the serpent in his uh, subtle way, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, the, the uh, serpent was very subtle, or very sagacious, and he was reasoning in his subtle way here with the woman. Now, verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was, a ple was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, 
and gave also unto her husband, and he did eat. So now we can see here how this uh, potential that was within the woman was stirred up or excited by the serpent and caused her to accept his reasoning rather than <clears throat> the reasoning of God. But we point out and call, uh, here at this point that it required an outside agent to stir this up. The woman was willing to accept the right way without this reasoning. So the crossing over from right to wrong was as excited by an outside tempter at this point. And so we have the fall, then, of our first human parents, brought about by sin. Now let us look at the punishment that was meted out to them as a result of this, Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of this tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So we find, then, man having fallen to this state, from that state of very good, to the state of mortality, of dying, being in a dying position, condition. Now let us look at the effect that this had upon our first human uh, parents. It affected them in three ways, morally mentally and physically. Morally, they became conscious of sin. They had a uh, guilty conscience as a result. This was apparent from what followed. They became estranged from God. They no longer enjoyed this close communion of which we spoke earlier. They were rendered unclean because of what they had done. This is point number one. Point number two, mentally, they began to experience an intense desire to continue to satisfy the desires of the flesh. They had a heart or mind from this point on which was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In other words, they became carnally minded because of sin. Physically, they were placed under death. It would appear that this was the beginning of the process known to us as metabolism, the building up and the tearing down of the body cells. Of course, early in life, the uh, building up uh, surpasses the tearing down, but in process of time, the uh, tearing down catabolism uh, outweighs the building up, and uh, of course, we are not able to do what we could do earlier in life. It appears, as we say, that this was the beginning of that process. But in any case, uh, they did become mortal as a result of what they had done. Now, it's important for us to recognize that these characteristics, which we have just described, were not a part of the creation, but a direct result of man's own actions, his transgressing of God's law.
brought this about. Now it's also important to recognize that these uh, characteristics were passed on to all of Adam and Eve's posterity. Now we read very simply in Job 14.4 the question, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And Job answers that question by saying, not one. So these, our first parents, as we have indicated, became unclean. Job says you cannot bring a clean thing out of an unclean. Not one can do this. So not one has come, been brought out of the unclean. So we are all then in the sight of God unclean. Now, we might pause for a moment to uh, caution you in this respect. We have said that they were affected morally because they became unclean, because they became sinful. They had a guilty conscience. They were affected morally. Now, we have said these things have been passed on to their uh, progeny. Well, when we say this, we must recognize what we mean in this connection by the moral part of this being passed on to their progeny. Because many people associate moral uncleanness with one's own personal actions. And now, in this way, if we limit it to that specifically, then the moral angle or the moral part of this was not passed on to their offspring. However, if we recognize it as having a guilty conscience of having been made spiritually unclean in the sight of God, then we can use the term morally or moral in this connection, but we have to recognize this. And we do not imply by this now that we are guilty for Adam's sin, that that personal guilt rests on us as our own personal transgressions rest upon us. This is not what we mean. We're talking about the effects of that transgression. All right, now, God, let us look at God's position in this matter. Now, he had created man. A man had not kept his law. Really, man deserved death as a result of this. But God had a plan and purpose. He did not create the earth in vain, Isaiah 45:18, but he created it to be inhabited. So to have destroyed Adam and Eve at this point would have frustrated his plan and purpose, and he was not going to do this. So it was necessary then for him to institute a plan of salvation. And we find that plan of salvation in a nutshell in Genesis 3:17. When God spoke to the serpent and said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, this we know to be referring to the seed of the woman or to Christ. And when he was crucified by the sand power that was symbolized by the serpent, this was a bruise in his heel. But he bruised the serpent in the head, of course, in his own case, and he has made it possible for the serpent or the seed of the serpent to be bruised in our case as well. But we're getting ahead of the story, though, at this point. Now, this plan of salvation uh, that became necessary at this point uh, had to be of a very particular kind. Now, at one time, uh, I reasoned in my mind that any kind of a plan that God might devise would have been all right because all things are possible with God, and we know this is true. 
However, we must take into account that anything that God did now at this point could not be something that would compromise his high standards of righteousness, but rather any plan adopted must be one that would declare the righteousness of God. God cannot look upon sin with any degree of tolerance, so it had to be something that would declare that high standard of righteousness. Now, for God simply to grant man salvation in this condition certainly would have been a compromise to his high standards of righteousness. For God to have removed the condition would have been no better to simply remove it from the man and the woman. So what it all comes down to is there was a principle established there in the man and the woman as a result of this sin and we know it as the devil, as sin in the flesh, as the sin-cursed nature. And now, what had to happen in order to declare God's righteousness in offering salvation to man in this situation? This condition that came about as a result of sin could not be forgiven or overlooked or simply removed. It had to be destroyed. This condition had to be destroyed in order to avoid a compromise in the high standards of the righteousness of God. All right, following the fall in Eden, the servants of God offered animal sacrifices for some 4,000 years. Now, was this principle of which we speak destroyed in the offering of those animal sacrifices? And you know the answer, and the answer is an emphatic no. It was not destroyed in the offering of those animal sacrifices. And why wasn't it? Why wasn't it destroyed in those sacrifices? The reason it wasn't destroyed in those sacrifices was because it did not exist there. It was not a part of those animals that were being offered in sacrifice from the time of Adam up to the coming of the Son of Man. It did not exist there. The, uh, the only way that this principle could be destroyed was in a person of one who bore this principle in his nature. This is the only place it could be destroyed, where it existed. Now, there is another reservation. Not just anyone who bore this nature would do. Under the law, we find that the animals that were to be sacrificed were to be without spot and without blemish. This would tell us, then, that it would have to be uh, uh, one who bore this nature, but who did not give in to the inclinations of this nature, one who successfully withstood the tendencies to sin, so that there would be a sacrifice bearing this nature, but without spot and without blemish. Now, it was quite impossible for man left to himself to provide such a sacrifice. It required the direct intervention of God in the matter to provide this. He had to intervene, and so he did, by the sending of his only begotten and well-beloved Son, Jesus the Christ. Now, let us quickly review what we've learned. 
The sin nature, sin in the flesh, had come about as a result of disobedience on the part of our first parents. It had been passed along to all of their posterity. It had to be destroyed before man would be in a suitable condition for salvation. It could not be destroyed in the animal sacrifices. It did not exist there. Neither could it be destroyed in the person of an angel, because it did not exist there. It must be destroyed by in the person of one who bore this very nature that must be destroyed. These requirements were all met in Jesus Christ. Now, it was necessary for him to bear this sin-cursed nature, as we have indicated, but not to yield to its inclinations, and he didn't. Since he was a descendant of Adam, of course, it follows that he would have had that nature. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Job asked, and answered, not one. So when Christ died on the cross, it was a public condemnation or destruction of sin in the flesh, thus demonstrating and declaring that God would not overlook or accept sin in the flesh, but it was destroyed in the person of Christ, and the way was opened up that it might be destroyed in others. And that's reminiscent of the verse where God spoke to the serpent when he said, It shall bruise thy head. So when Christ was, dis was crucified on the cross, the seed of the serpent was bruised in the head, or it was a destruction of sin in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And the way was opened up, as we have said, that it might be destroyed in others. Now, we've made some rather uh, broad statements here. Can we prove this? By uh, thus saith the Lord. Let us look at Hebrews 2.14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, now we know what that is. We know about the flesh and blood nature. We've been discussing it. As the children were partakers of flesh and blood, he, and this is Christ, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might, what's the word here? He might destroy him that hath power over death, or power of death, that is the devil. So this is, is exactly what we have said. Now, if we analyze that verse... It says the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Now it says he also himself likewise took part of the same for a reason. Now what reason was it that he partook of this flesh and blood nature? That through death, now that's how this was going to be done, was through death, he might destroy something. And what he was going to destroy is that which has power over death, which is the devil as described here. Now, what is it that has power over death? If we know that, we will know what Christ destroyed, and we will know what is here described or referred to as the devil. 
If we look at Romans 5.21, we find that these words, like as sin, like as sin hath reigned unto death. So that which reigns to death, or that which has power of death, then is sin. So this is what Christ destroyed, was sin. Now, let us think about this word sin. And it's necessary for us to bring about, or bring into our discussion, another phase of this same word. And that is personal transgressions. Now, Dr. Thomas says that the word sin is used in the scripture in two principal acceptations. First, it is the transgression of the law. Secondly, it is that nature within us which resulted from the fall of our first parents, uh, of which we have been speaking. Now, which one of these is it that reigns or has power, uh, the power of death? Is it the sin nature or is it our personal sins? Which one of these two are we talking about? Well, let us consider the situation. Uh, Infants who have done no personal sin, sins die. Christ, who also did no personal sin, committed no personal sin, died. So what does that tell us? It tells us that our personal sin is not what brings death. That sin which brings death is the second way, the second principal acceptation uh, that Dr. Thomas refers to as the way the, the word is used in the scriptures of truth. That is our sin-cursed nature, which we all bear. That is what has the power of death. Then, that tells us that wh that which existed in Christ's nature, which he took on in order that he might accomplish his mission, was the sin-cursed nature, and that was what was destroyed in his crucifixion, in his death. Now, if we go back to this Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy, destroy him that hath power of death, that is, the devil. Now, if we might paraphrase this a little bit, we would say that he might destroy him that hath power of death, that is, our sin-cursed nature. So, uh, for the reason we have been discussing here all this time, and there's no reason for us to repeat it, it goes without saying that nature was within Christ. And uh, that was something that was between him and salvation, because that's what the problem was. After our first parents fell, they were in a situation where they were not suitable for salvation until that nature which they bore had been destroyed. So it goes without saying that Christ benefited from his own uh, crucifixion and sacrifice. It was for him and for the people. Now this was true under the law. When the high priest went into the, holy the most holy place once a year, he went to offer for himself and for the errors of the people. So we find the antitype fulfilled perfectly in the case of Christ. Now, considering Christ's sacrifice and the way that uh, it affects us, and we also want to uh, uh, emphasize something here, that when we talk about 
the sacrifice of Christ, and then when we move into the way in which we uh, benefit from that sacrifice or become a part of the eternal plan of salvation, we know this is done through the waters of baptism. Now, we would like to conclude by uh, discussing with you the two things that are accomplished in this act of baptism, which we become involved in when we accept the plan and purpose of God and become a part of it. First of all, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Here the Apostle Paul, addressing the Corinthian brethren, said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is the important point. Paul says, and such were some of you, but what has happened? But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, they were guilty, Paul says, of these things which he uh, enumerated here. But he says the situation has changed. You've been justified from these things. You've been cleansed from these things. When did that take? Well, first of all, what were these things? What would we, uh, how would we characterize these things of which Paul spoke here? Personal sins, wouldn't we? All right, when were they cleansed? He says they were down the road. They were that, in that condition. But he says you've been, this has been changed. You've been cleansed from these things. When did that take place? Baptism. It took place in baptism. So we would conclude from that then that our baptism uh, uh, takes care of the personal sins committed prior to baptism. And we do have these personal sins that must be forgiven at our baptism. So we want to make this clear. This is one of the things baptism accomplishes. Now, what else does it accomplish? Let's look at Ephesians 2, 11, and 12. Here again, Paul writing, but this time to the Ephesian brethren. And he said, Wherefore remember that ye being in times past, now in the past, before they were in the position they were at this time, ye were Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh. How? By the blood of Christ. How do we come in contact uh, symbolically with the blood of Christ? At the waters of baptism. So we conclude, we, we, in fact, we are forced into the conclusion that this situation that exists... Now, first of all, uh, before we say this, let us ask this question. Has there ever been a man, woman, or child born into the world that was not in the condition described here as being without Christ? 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before a personal sin has been committed, before uh, an infant has done any of those things, this condition described by Paul here to the Ephesian brethren existed. It existed in the early life of all of us. Now, what he says changes that is uh, in verse 14, or verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, ye who sometimes were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and so forth, have been made uh, nigh by the blood of Christ. So we must uh, be forced to the conclusion then that baptism accomplishes two things. It forgives our personal sins. It is a covering for our personal, uh, well, for our personal sins and for our sin-cursed nature so that we are made nigh because of this. Now, it does not remove mortality. Sometimes I think we have uh, been in error and not in our understanding of the principles involved here, but the way we have expressed it, we have said that it removes the Adamic condemnation. Now, part of the Adamic condemnation is mortality, and of course our baptism does not remove that. But it, it, it puts us in a different relationship to God, and uh, Brother Williams used the term legal. It puts us legally in connection with Christ, with the Abrahamic covenants, with the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, David, and all of this, and brings us nigh so that both our personal sin and our Adamic condemnation are accounted for in the waters of baptism. Now, uh, as we said, this should have been earlier in our discussion, but we didn't think we were going to have time. So tomorrow we'll have to try to pick up now the uh, loose end of where we left off today or before we started this discussion. But we feel that it, it, it's most important that we recognize what it is that has brought about this uh, uh, fractured relationship between God and man and how it is to be rectified. Thank you.